Hi, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge, where we explore the work and lives of our guests and the role purpose plays for them. And at the end, as usual, I'll add a couple of extra thoughts. Now, I should say this episode contains some themes and experiences around sexual abuse. So if that's confronting, you can take your best course of action now. My guest today is Malika Elizabeth Reese, who's the artist in residence and celebrant at Tender Funerals in Port Kembla, just south of Wollongong. She's a speaker, a writer, a singer. She's had three kids in three different decades and two different centuries. And she's met Stevie Wonder three times. And we've got to find out more about that. But welcome, Malika, to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Phil. Now, I want to touch on your, I guess, your current role before we delve into backstories and, and all that. So your current role at the uh, funeral service provider, Tender Funerals, tell us about what it means to be an, an artist in, in residence at that sort of operation. It's quite an honour. Um, the woman who started the tender, Jenny Briscoe-Hoff, had this vision that we should be able to bring rituals back into our everyday common, um, well, death is an everyday common occurrence, and that through things like singing and sewing, because we also have a sewing group, we can so bring our community back in together and help each other to to regulate our emotions, to just find solace and peace with each other and and to help um, relieve our grief. And this is not your standard funeral operator either, tender funeral. So do you want to just give us a little bit of flavour about that? Because that'll probably help explain uh, your role and what you were just explaining then. Um, well, tender began with Jenny because she did her mother's funeral. She did everything that she could for her mother and it still cost a, a bit of an arm and a leg. And she thought it's not right that when we're suffering grief through the loss of a loved one, that we should be having to shop around for the best price and that no one should be profiting off, you know, our loved one's death. So Tender is the first non-profit, non-for-profit um, funeral home in Australia. And I think it started about six years ago or so, um, seven maybe, and it is spreading all across the country, actually. There's Tenders popping up all over the place now. And part of it is not just the low cost for people, but also including the whole family in the process. In fact, our best model is when the family takes over, the whole, you know, arranging as much as possible, doing the service whenever possible, keeping their loved ones at home. If, if a loved one dies at home, they always say, don't call somebody, just get a cup of tea, just sit, and then they can bring a cool plate and you can sit with your loved one at home. So it's really changing the whole um, concept because Australians are so death averse. <laughs> we are incredibly death averse. And we need, it, it's inevitable. And I used to say death and taxes you couldn't avoid. Well, if you're rich enough, you can avoid taxes. <laughs> <laughs> but not death. Elon Musk is probably, and some of those people probably try and avoid death, but who, who knows how that'll go. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it's we're not very death literate either. And, and I'm not just talking about the, cultural experience of death i'm talking about the fact that your first instinct in that situation is to probably call an undertaker and and uh, i believe that's when control transfers over to that party but for you or for jenny or um for someone with other religious persuasions having the body in the home is is sometimes the way to go yes absolutely i think it helps to process for us our emotions over the real the new reality that this loved one is no longer alive and in other cultures, in the Irish or the Maoris, it's quite, you know, common to have your loved one at home 
um, for a day or two or three. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It's not to be scared, scared of. So the question is then why have we ended up on this trajectory? Why are we, we at where we are? That's a really good question. I, I was um, at a function last night and I was talking with a woman about this book that was published in, the same book was published in America and in Australia. And in America it was about, like, you know, the grandfather dying. And at the end you saw the coffin, you saw his coffin being walked through the streets, everyone sort of was, you know, celebrating his life and his death. And in Australia the ending was an empty armchair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little abrupt and uh unpersonal yeah it's like saying I, I, so the publishers obviously even feel that australians just don't have the gumption or they're too scared they're, they're too taboo but we're very a very cloistered society as well we're very cloistered in our bodies we're very cloistered about um, trauma and and death so i should add here for anyone who's interested in learning more about the story of tender funerals there's several documentaries and i'll try and include some of them in the show notes um, it's it's a really um, uplifting show to to watch, despite the the subject matter for reasons we're talking about. Um, but tell me what what does your role there mean in terms of how does it translate into activities and and planning and what you actually do with people? Well, I'm the I run the choir, so the choir mistress, and people come together. Just be, everybody who comes to the choir has lost somebody. It's it's pretty hard to find someone who hasn't lost any someone. And there's times even when our loved ones are in the mortuary where we and we sing at tender. And, and that can be a really beautiful thing. We sing at memorials and we sing at some services. I'm also a funeral celebrant, so I sing at services about 50% of the time when people ask me to. And And live music, what we find, actually helps to either regulate our emotions so that we feel calmer or it helps to release our emotions, which is also both are really necessary in processing grief and death. Yeah, I guess the standard fare at a funeral is to pick a track that's probably coming off a off Spotify or a CD and um, something everyone knows, but it it is it's recorded. So the as you say, that live experience must be very different. It's a beautiful gift. Yeah, to someone. And it's I'm thinking about the outcome here. And we can get obsessed about measuring outcomes, but I'm, I'm sure you see the outcomes in people. But if you had to, if someone said, "Well, how do you how do you measure the the positive effect of this?" Could you do it? That's a good question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing all these curly questions at you. It's I don't know if you can subject. measure it, but I know that people feel really moved, and and there's a lot of um, appreciation for the live music, um, especially when it's something a song that's meaningful to that loved one. So I've, we've sung everything from Barbie Girl to November Rain to Pearl Jam, wow. Love Seekers, um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the Israel Kama Kama Wawaole version <laughs> is really popular. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really, really interesting. And what do you get out of it personally when you're when you're doing these events as a singer or celebrant? I just feel like it's a real gift to give. Um, I did a service yesterday for a gentleman and I was just practising. that Some some um, funeral places have better acoustics than others. I recommend Waranora. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great acoustics. And and it's it's just very moving. It's very touching. It just gives us extra personal feeling to the whole service. It feels very special. 
And when I was practicing yesterday, even the um, the funeral directors and assistants there sort of were popping their heads out to see who's who's that singing. What? Oh, I thought it was a recording, but you know, they appreciated it. And it's very rare. I think I might be one of the only singing celebrants around. Okay, well, that's your tag from now on, the singing celebrant. Excellent. Um, and where does this then fit into your, um, I guess, career and and uh, work journey? Well, I'm also the singing MC or the singing speaker. Like I think every time I speak, I tend to sing a song. I I, I think I've always been a, a singer, and and it, and it just makes people happy. It just gives them a different experience and makes it uh, everything more memorable. I think. So everything you do um, or have pursued professionally has is it all hung off singing as being at the core, or or is there something else? No, I think at the core for me is um, community, connection, love, and acceptance. And I feel that music though does bring people together in a way that nothing else can. Like one song in three minutes, two minutes, can connect a whole room together. And even better, if it's a song that everyone knows, like say sometimes I'll sing Stand By Me and you've got the whole room singing together, you know, and it just knits everyone together in a beautiful energy. Mm. So if that community and connection piece is at the centre, you're saying singing is one expression or I guess one mechanism for, for I guess, uh, asserting that that goal that you have? Yes, absolutely. And yeah. it does it so quickly and efficiently, you know, that and laughter. So I definitely like to incorporate laughter. And if I can sing a funny song, even better. <laughs> and and so, yeah, on, as well as singing and laughter, are there other elements here that we need to be adding in? <laughs> um, no, just, just authenticity. That's the main thing. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, uh, let, let's just... Go back a little bit. So where did you grow up? I was born in Hollywood, came to Australia when I was three, went back to America the day Elvis died when I was six, came back to Australia when I was 12. Um, I've lived, I've gone to 12 different schools, one university here in Wollongong, and I've been to private schools, public schools, co-ed, single single sex in three different countries. And... um, yeah, I, so I've sort of grown up everywhere from Armadale to Sydney uh, and I've lived in Wollongong longer than anywhere. Wollongong's like blue. <laughs> Go figure. It's gone into red time or overtime or something by the sounds of it. Um, so what are the pros and cons of living in so many different places? I've felt that I can be a, an observer of many different things. Like I've always felt that I straddle lines. I'm not black, I'm not white. I've got a black mother, a white father, I'm not exactly American or Australian. I'm not exactly country girl, but I've lived in a city. I lived, I, I used to walk through King's Cross in my school uniform. <laughs> you know, now I'm in the, you know, the regional suburbs and, and it gives you this real opportunity to see um, how we are. We have more in common than we have differences, if we could just see that. Hmm. I sort of get it that uh, of people listening to the show, you might not be in Australia nor um, really know Wollongong, which is south by now south of Sydney, and it sort of does straddle. I think a lot of those elements you're talking about. It's uh, mm. it's not big city, but it's it's not country, and and uh, yeah, I, I can see why you'd be attracted or maybe end up here for longer. <laughs> well, it's just a naturally beautiful place between the mountains and the sea, and it took me about ten years of living here before I realised it's actually one of the most temperate places in the world. 
never gets too hot nor too cold. Mm. Yes, it is uh, coming from Tasmania by birth. Um, it's a bit chilly down that way, and I do love it here. As much as I'd love to go back, um, the the weather in this area is, is pretty good. Um, so what do you really remember from your childhood then, given you were flitting amongst from Hollywood to Australia back to the U.S.? Yeah, well, actually, what sticks out about your U.S. experience first? Well, one thing, again, about that straddling the lines that I found interesting is that um, as a girl here in Australia, I had my black mum. I'd go to school at a white school in Balmain, Carlingford, and um, people always went, you're black, you're black. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm black. And then I moved to America with my white stepfather and I went to predominantly brown school and everyone went, you're white, you're white. And I thought from such an early age, I thought, wow, black and white, they're pretty different. And yet people see me as both. So, you know, our perceptions really are loose. And, yeah. you know, that whole thing of nothing's good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Our perceptions can change fluidly and we can choose to look differently at things. So relativities come into play. Mm. And did was that ever awkward or difficult? Were, were you discriminated um, or you know, excluded from anything because of people's perceptions? No, not at all. I, I kind of expected to be bullied, but I never was. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's a good, that's a nice story. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I lost, I, I got my Australian accent, you know, I, I learned to speak in Australia, so I went to America with an Australian accent. They kind of were like, oh, that's weird. And I, I learned to pick up an American accent pretty quickly. And when I came back when I was 12, I, I learned to shed that American accent as quickly as I could as well, which... <laughs> so if you went back to America, would you slide back into your accent just to try and fit in or you'd stick with your proud Aussie accent now? I'm so grateful to be living in Australia. I mean, my my sister, my family, a lot of families to live in America, but Australia in so many ways is a much more lucky country, as as they say. And mm. it, I've, I've had a much better quality of life here than I think I could have had in America. I mean, I know we, we have political conversations here, but I get the sense in the US and particularly now, friendships are really, the politics is a dividing line between family and friends. Do, is that true or am I just projecting that? Oh, oh, it certainly is. But I think we saw that here in Australia with COVID. That was a, that was a, that was pretty divisive. But I, I have a niece who voted for Trump and there's a lot of us in the family going, what are you thinking? <laughs> Does it, uh, but you talk to each other, right? I, yeah, I get love it. It. she loves yeah. me. We just don't talk politics. Yeah, I, I get a sense some some families and groups splinter along those lines. It's, it's sort of they won't they won't cross that line very easily. Yeah. Um, so you also and and I should say to listeners, you're happy to talk about this, and you are you're active in this area. You said your stepfather was convicted of something. So do you want to talk about that? Yep, um, my stepfather, Swish. High standing member of society, he's uh, a doctorate in Baroque music, um, and he was named senior citizen of the year in his town. And he was still working with children. And uh, I knew for a fact that he had abused me growing up. It was, you know, and it was inappropriate with his family members, with children down the road. So I, I caught him on that, and um, I just thought I knew that the system, the judicial system, is really uh, not. Good about this in Australia, but I just thought I'd give it a go. And 
I was lucky enough that a QC on the day um, took over my case and said, I know about men like this, we're going to get them. Then I asked for the name suppression order to be dropped, which was the first thing that they asked for in court. So I'm one of the first people in Australia to do that, but I realised that it's not my shame to carry and he needed to be outed. So unfortunately it was, you know, um, what do you call it? it the, the, he went to jail for the length of time, you know, how for when the crimes were committed and what the, you know, the law would put you away for back then. So he only went to jail for about 18 months. Right. And when you said suppression order, was that about his name or your name or both? Well, they say it's to protect the victim, but I felt that it was to protect the perpetrator. And so I had the name order dropped so that he could be outed and he could be publicly named. Right. And um, can I ask what, what age were you when all this was playing out? When I finally got the gumption, because I went to the police in my late 20s and then I, I sort of chickened out and then when my daughter turned four which was the age that I was when he started grooming me and and um, I just was like oh my god how could anyone find a four-year-old sexually attractive this is so wrong and that's when I went back to the police with it and it took about five years so I was in my mid-30s when he went to jail and and there was more than one victim here there was yeah and so I guess moving forward in terms of purpose and where you apply your focus today, you're you're part of a movement here or an action, a National Centre for Action on this. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, the National Centre for Action on Child Sexual Abuse formed about 18 months, almost two years ago. And the idea is to make policies with people with living experience, which makes so much sense. And... So there's about 12 of us with living experience um, on the in the college and we're helping just to inform the people at the top who may not have living experience, although many of them do as well, you know, how we can go forward to help eradicate this, how to bring awareness, how to bring support to uh, uh, survivors, victim survivors. And so is what's the scope of um, this National Centre for Action on child sexual abuse, is is it about policy or, or is it more about supporting survivors? Uh, both, I would say, and to make actual tangible changes that are going to help people. So even, and I've said this for years, there needs to be a call centre for people who feel that they're going to abuse. There's been a lot of uh, resistance on that because they're like, well, why should we uh, support a pedophile? And, and I've always thought, well, if someone's sitting on the line thinking maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, and they call up, well, then you're protecting a child. So that's something that they've got in place in in uh, the UK, which in many ways, like things with coercive control and other things, that they're a little bit of, uh, definitely ahead of Australia, but we're catching up. And um, so things like that I think are going to be implemented, I, I hope. I mm. can't and what, what else annoys or frustrates you? What what could be done fairly easily that's not being done? Educating our children. One thing is that while we will talk about child abuse in institutional child abuse a little bit more readily in the last 10 years or so, hands down the majority of children are abused in their families. Intrafamiliar child abuse is by far the biggest, you know, 
cause of harm. And that seems to be the last taboo. No one wants to admit that someone in their own family is going to hurt someone else, a child. So I think that we need to just, in a simple age-appropriate way, you know, educate our children and support our children um, so that they know what's okay and that they are not okay and how to feel safe in their bodies. And is, do you think it's about educating parents more as well, the non-perpetrating parents? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just just sweeping awareness will be great for mm. eradicating this because while we don't talk about it and while we don't have the uncomfortable conversations, it, it just is allowed to um, continue in silence and in secrecy. Yeah. There was a show, I don't know if you saw it, it was called Safe Home on uh, SBS in, in Australia. And if you said, it's, uh, if someone asks you what it was about, you say, well, it's, it's actually about family violence. And which sounds like a bit of a turnoff, but it was done so well in such a dramatic way. It was like a mystery and a thriller. Um, you could have recommended the show without saying it was about family violence. And it, even though all the things that were going on there, you sort of know are issues as a person to actually see them acted out and how sinister it it could look and feel. And, and it seemed to be a pretty genuine portrayal of what would go on in terms of family violence in many different contexts. Um, it, it really rammed it home as something that, wow, this could be happening anywhere. And and there was a tagline to the show that said there's there's two types of people, those who those who think family violence can't happen and, and those who know it can happen to anyone. Or, or the tagline was something like that. But I'm, I'm wondering if you went into this subject matter, it would be even more challenging to portray in a in a series or a show or, or to really bring it to life. So. Yeah, it sounds like they're – tell us about that. In terms of the subject matter, it must make it even more difficult to to talk about in the mainstream. Well, I actually wrote a, a show about this myself 10 years ago, but I haven't found a producer yet. So if you know anyone out there who wants to produce a show about the cheery subject of intrafamiliar child abuse, intergenerational, I had to write it in such a way that was all smoke and mirrors and light and dancing around it, nothing graphic you know, because I don't think we're ready for that. But unless we see it in our families, like you said, safe home and start to have those conversations and start to go, oh, you know, is this happening? Where is this happening? Do we know who this is happening to? Because it's one in four, at least, they're being, you know. Um, so the maltreatment report came out. It's the first of its kind in Australia. And it showed that 60% of Australians um, have been witness or subject to some form of abuse, um, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual uh, neglect or witnessing um, domestic violence. So 60%, you know, happy families mm. are the exception, not the norm. And yeah. we need to see this representation on the screen more so that we can um, have these conversations so that we can put a spotlight on it and and eradicate it. Well, maybe it's time to dust off that script and get it in front of the same producers. I, I could definitely see it coming around. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's move on. You've had a couple of other interesting life experiences um, in a video shop in Coromel, which for people who don't know, Coromel is a, also a suburb of Wollongong, but tell us about the video shop in Coromel. No, it was a joke. It was a video shop in Criminal. I mean, Coromel. I mean, Criminal. I mean, Coromel. Um, I was, I was uh, working in a video shop. I was doing two jobs for some reason uh, at the time before I had children uh, and I was just closing up at the end of the night, put the vacuum cleaner away in the back room and came out to find someone dressed in black with uh, over the counter with their hands in the till. 
um, black balaclava. You never know what you're going to do in that sort of situation. I happened to be wearing a Doctor Who scarf at the time, right. the only scarf I'd ever made and knitted, and it was quite a heavy from foot to foot scarf. So it was a range weapon. I took it off. I whacked him on the back with it. I said, what are you doing? He brandished his screwdriver at me and he ran out the door. Now, okay. I ran out after him and you might have to bleep this. I yelled at him, you're a, <laughs> can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> and bad karma's going to get you. You can imagine what I said. And and then I went back into the shop and dialed uh, 911. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I dialed triple zero. And the police came, they they took me to Wollongong Station, took my statement, and on the way back, so this was mid-90s, they said we could fine you for offensive language. Oh, great. Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm a victim here and they're having a go at me. And I don't know the inner scholar in me because I have a you know, Bachelor of Creative Writing and Arts and English. I said, if Hamlet can say to Ophelia in Act 3, Scene 2, what is it to lay in a lady's lap? Let us not speak of country matters. If it's good enough for Shakespeare, it's good enough for I. <laughs> and that shut them up. <laughs> oh, okay, right. They're probably totally bamboozled with that, with that quote. <laughs> it did. <laughs> so you wouldn't have known what weapon this person had necessarily, or, or did you? It was a screwdriver. But when I went to work the next day, because I, I, um, I think because of the child abuse, and I've learned this when we talk about the next thing that happened, we don't talk enough of, again about our survival mechanisms that just automatically kick in. For me, I disassociate automatically. So I didn't think anything about having been robbed with a you know with a weapon. I just went to work the next day, and when I went to to Foxtel and I talked to the security guards about it, they went, "Oh, screwdrivers, they're bad. You know, a knife can get suctioned into you and you can't get it out again, but a screwdriver just goes in and out really nicely." Oh, great. And I was like, okay, all right. Glad he didn't use it. <laughs> well, that's a jovial conversation, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess you find out a bit about yourself in the moment. So, yeah. 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 I, I, I act. I didn't, again, I didn't think about it. I just, yeah, just acted. So, so before we go on to the next bit, I did mention in the intro, you've had three children in three different decades. You, you've got to explain that. Well, we, she just slipped into the to 1999. So okay, one in 1999, good old 20th century girl, woman now, and uh, one in 2002. So and then one in 2012. Okay, he was my midlife surprise, still fertile. Right. Okay. I guess uh, have you ever met anyone who can claim the same feat? No, but I'm sure they're out there. <laughs> I'm sure they are. <clears throat> if anyone listening knows someone who's had a child in in three different decades, then then please let us know. Uh, so then, one of your children was involved in a. By the way, have you ever thought these are these things following you because you had another incident with a dance studio? So I'll let you explain that one as well. Yeah, I I am an odd person that way. I do tend to be the one who finds weird things in their food and their drinks. You know. Maybe you're just fruit. more attentive than the rest of us. <laughs> no, just just a gift, I guess. Um, so you want me to tell you the third one? Yes, please. Okay, so um, it, it's kind of weird because 
I had a friend who was running a, a toddler circus class at a dance studio. We've been friends for years and she'd been asking me all year to come visit. And every Tuesday I'd been going to a different friend. And this Tuesday I went, I'm going to go. I'm finally going to go. So I went first time to this class at a dance studio in Wollongong. And after it finished, it's interesting because I was talking to my friend um, about a show that I was running at the time, um, a variety show called the Village Variety Review. And she was going to come and speak publicly, her first public speaking about gratitude that Sunday. So we were speaking about gratitude, about how her father had been a paraplegic, um, about how important it is to live, you know, with gratefulness in our lives. And we saw, and our children were just playing. And then we heard this, this revving and heard the smash and this car came through the full length windows in the front of the dance studio, came in by about six centimetres or so. My son was about a metre, metre and a half max away between the headlights of that car, just staring at it going, we were all staring at it like, what? Mm. that was weird. Yeah. Um, and then it didn't take long for that car to then go in reverse, stop that short of hitting a car with an eight-month pregnant woman, the right. driver's side. He Sorry, I'm, I'm, we're doing this on video. That's about two inches short of, yeah. <laughs> three inches short it was pretty that it was literally just centimeters that he stopped from hitting her car and and she was a sitting duck she couldn't have done anything to get out of the way this was a brand new v6 and then we thought okay good he stopped and then he revved again and i did again didn't have time to think i just ran towards my son and i grabbed him and then turned to run for the back of the room and the car came through hit me, I flew through the air with him in my arms, legs to the ceiling. Uh, he ran over my friend who I was speaking with, little size eight body with tire marks up her back. Her daughter got a fractured skull. Oh, crikey. Uh, and the car went through a double brick wall and actually looked great. It was a Toyota. I actually bought a Toyota afterwards because I was like, so not, this is not an ad, but I was like, you make a good car, Toyota. <laughs> Bad drivers, but, but good car. <laughs> and... Um, and, yeah, I, I was just, I think the, the gratitude, having spoken about gratitude just before, actually helped because in my vice-like grip, having my son in my arms, the fact that he was okay, the fact that he was alive, I was I was overwhelmed with gratitude and a lot of shock. Mm. And you might have said this, how old was he? He was 22 months old. Okay, wow. Okay. So he had no idea of the danger he was in whatsoever. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Again, I think a bad part of, and that's why I wish we could talk more about the whole abuse stuff, because my, I kicked into my um, childhood survival mechanism once again, and I disassociated. I, I didn't even know that I'd been hit. It felt like a door had hit my back, like a full-size door had whacked me on the back, but I, I didn't know to the extent that I'd been hit until days later when all the witnesses were like, Mal, you were tossed like a rag doll through the air, you know. Hmm. The problem being that when I went to the hospital, they just thought I was fine. You know, they just went, you look super, you act super, you don't act like anything's wrong with you. But they did zero tests on me and they said, you can walk home, you can take the glass out of your arm when you get home. So, you know, hmm. I was in shock. I I, I didn't realise, but, yeah. So was... do you find, so, yes, you've been in robbery, <clears throat> you've been in this, you've had other things going on in your life, is there a point in time, days, weeks, months later, where it does manifest and play out? 
uh, of the trauma of it. Yeah. Oh, it almost certainly did because I I knew what I'd gone through, but everybody saw my other friend as the victim, and they did they saw that I looked fine and capable. They didn't see that there was anything wrong with me. Um, she had an outpouring of of support. I had none. Um, even when I asked my my ex husband if he would do the dishes for me, he was like, "Why would I do your dishes?" I was like, uh, okay, I won't ask anybody for any help. So I just sort of retreated into myself and just nursed my wounds. But as a as a professional performer, again, the insurance company just sort of went, oh, well, look at you getting up on stage. And I was like, it was the only thing I would leave my house for. It was like, that's my job. That's the only reason I'm getting on stage is because that's my job. So it's taken, it took a lot of years, especially because the insurance company just really keep you in a victim mode to prove the, the validation of your injuries. And with me, they particularly drew it out for like seven, eight years. And then they forgot to write the confidentiality clause into their final contract. And what does that mean? That means I can talk about it to my heart's content. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Well, it sounds like that's bad luck for them. That's for I sure. think so. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, there's probably been other things um, of note, but uh, let, let's move on to something a bit more um, uplifting, perhaps at face value. You said you've met Stevie Wonder three times, so I'm, I'm curious in what what context, where, and was it all close together or spread out? How does this happen? Okay. So. <clears throat> When my mum came to Australia when I was three, she got involved with the Aboriginal community, uh, arts community, and she was there before the um, Aboriginal Art of Dance Theatre um, became a thing. And so she was friends with a lot of the dancers. One of those dancers um, came to visit us when we went back to America to stay with us. She ended up dancing in a video clip for Stevie she has a voice a bit like Eartha Kitt, so I, I, I think he just really fell in love with her voice. So he started dating, um, dating her. Oh, and wow. it's kind of interesting because the first time he came to visit her at our, uh, we had a duplex. My grandmother lived downstairs, we lived upstairs, but I was downstairs with my grandma. And my mum's like, come upstairs. And I'm like, I'll come up when I'm ready. That was the first time he came. I missed him that time. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, the second time he came, I uh, I did see him and he gave me uh, a zerbit on my cheek. Oh, okay. And so my many years later, my sister died and I went back to America to go to her funeral. And my this woman, my, my godmother she became, she wanted to cheer me up, I guess you know, as best, as best as you can when your beloved sibling has died. So so I'm going to throw this one at you as well. Not only did she take me to Stevie's um, mother's birthday party that night, she also took me to see Prince perform in his own nightclub at his own house. Oh, go away. This, well, it's getting <laughs> ridiculous now. <laughs> Which is very surreal to have those two things happen the same night. And as I sat with Stevie at that dinner afterwards, um, my sister's father, we have different fathers, was a DJ in America, in LA. And he was like, I really liked, you know, her father. I really, I'm sorry for your loss. So I thought, I want him to remember me. So I gave him a <laughs> on his cheek. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, a few years later, he came to Australia on a tour and we got backstage passes. And again, when I saw him, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
Well, that's a very special bonding experience that you've had that I'm sure not many, I'm sure no one else has had that bonding experience. <laughs> My only residual question is, well, when you met Prince or saw Prince, was, uh, did you party like it was 1999? <laughs> yes, of course. How could you not? <laughs> Prince well, is a year, private what, nightclub, jeez. Yeah, I was going to say, what year was this anyway? Um, 2005, end of 2005. Excellent. So is there anything you need to or could or should tell us about your, say, your own singing experience or other artistic experiences you've had? I mean, you probably can't top Stevie Wonder and Prince, but I'll, I'll give you a chance just in case. No, they're definitely at the top of the list of, of interesting uh, people that I've met. Um, uh, I've met a few, you know, met Paul Simon and Hugh Masekela and... Um, Dalai Lama, Richard Gere—I don't know. You know, you, you probably met a few bunch, a whole bunch of people yourself. Just people cross your paths. I think sometimes you don't, you don't always remember them because you think, oh yeah, that just happened then, and it's only at some stage later you think, oh, that, that person was quite famous, weren't they? Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm being put on the spot. I'm struggling to think. Um, but uh, my, well, I've got to say, my wife to be when I met her was a, a newsreader on Triple J. So, so how's that? That's pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty cool back in the day, that's for sure. Um, and what, what's it like then, given your career revolves around performance um, of various descriptions, what is that lifestyle like? And do you really love it or, you know, is it hard work at times? Yeah, at times it's it's hard work, but over the years I've learned to try to quell the stress of, um, of the balls juggling. Mm. I, my mantra, well, my affirmation, I guess, is I, I use my words and my voice to make a positive difference in many people's lives. And so as, as long as it falls under that banner, um, that's what I do. And whether it's like this week, teaching music to toddlers, doing a funeral, uh, speaking about abortion at a, at a live, you can't ask that. I'll be doing some storytelling. I'll be a, you know, a high priestess for an event, emceeing, you know, um, writing a play right now about death for children and as well as writing my own show about my experiences for the Melbourne Fringe. <laughs> it's, um, I, I love it because I know that I'm making a positive, I am making a positive difference in many people's lives. Mm, and you're having fun by the sounds of it. It really energises you along the way by the sounds yeah. of it. Yeah. So you you are you told me you're taking two shows to the Melbourne Fringe. One of them I'll say out loud. The other one I'm not sure. Sure, <laughs> one of them is called Titanium Mum instead of Titanium Titanium Mum. Yes. Titanium. And the other the other one is called Church of the Something, and I won't say the something. It starts with C. Um, so <laughs> what, is that a taboo word? I mean, uh, well, I yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's um, it's not your average word that you you drop in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> titanium mum I'm, I'm guessing is about motherhood and being a uh a rock solid uh mum is that correct it's about having been robbed raped and run over and finding my inner superhero and hoping that other people can find their inner superhero as well okay right oh, excellent well i won't say excellent because yeah that doesn't <laughs> sound excellent but you're sort of putting a humorous spin on it well, so okay. that way most people laugh so it's okay to laugh i, I think th this is something interesting that i've learned through tender as well and being a funeral celebrant and I'd like to speak more about as well, is that laughter is absolutely on the healthy spectrum of healing from trauma and grief. 
Mm. And we seem to think that if we laugh, we are minimising or not being um, respectful for what has happened. But laughter is absolutely healing. And, you know, gallows humour, there's people who need to laugh in order to deal with what they've gone through. And and that's another thing that I like to speak about is that, yeah, it's okay to laugh at this stuff. Mm. I think you probably noticed with me it was a nervous laughter because some, when you don't know exactly what it's all about, you you don't know the full context. And sometimes it's a bit, uh, can be personally risky to go full on into laughter when you're not quite sure exactly what all this is about. Yeah, it's okay. With me, it's okay. You know, I guess take the lead by the person who's um, telling the story. Yeah. I guess when people step into your fringe show, it's pretty clear why they're there. They're there to have a bit of fun and a bit of a laugh. So, like yeah, that. And I'm going to be interactive. I'm going to get them to sing with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be a hoot. Um, and now we're going to go into our three wrap-up questions. And one of them you actually answered a minute ago, but see if you remember your answer because I thought it was quite good. What contributes to your sense of purpose? You're connecting with other people and helping people to find our commonalities and helping people just to like themselves a little bit more, you know, accept themselves. I think it, I used to say, just got to love yourself. And then I realized it's really hard for a lot of people. But if you can just start with, you know, a few things you like, a few things you accept, maybe a bit of self kindness and self care, we can move up the ladder to like and love. And if, if I can help people with that, it gives me an immense amount of joy. And you did mention just a minute ago your words and something. I forget what the phrase was that you used. I use my words and my and my voice to make a positive difference in many people's lives. Yeah, wonderful. Second question: What are you really looking forward to from here? Hopefully, no more car accidents or things of that nature. But um, what are you yeah, looking forward to? Um, well, I I realize that this thing that I want to do with my words and my voice, I don't want to retire. I just want to do that till I die. What do, you mean, what do you mean retire? You look about 20 years younger than me, so <laughs> <laughs> I should I'm be retired. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've got I'm half black, black don't crack, so and I and I smile a lot. Like if you look at someone like Al Yankovic, I reckon he's he's got the kind of face of someone who's enjoyed their life and you can see it on their face. So, you know, right. live a good life. As say in contrast to I'm thinking Al Pacino. Not a lot of smiles. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> But he could be a very happy person. I don't know. Um, okay, third question. What advice would you give your younger self if you could go back in time? Is there any advice you'd like to give yourself that would help you leave a, lead a better and fulfilling life? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. A, that you, despite what you feel, you are worthy. You do matter. You are loved. Um, you are unique. We are all unique. And then my favourite phrase that, you know, we bandy or throw around these days <laughs> is uh, what other people think about you is none of your business. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one, especially for introverts as well. That uh, that has meaning. So, Malika, thank you for coming on and sharing your, I was trying to think of a, a phrase, almost like a, a circus wheel or a chocolate wheel of experiences and life happenings, some some light, some not so light, but um, I think, as you say, talking about this and bringing it out is is a big part of your what's driving you. I can tell, and you you do it in a very interesting way. So thanks for coming onto the show and sharing your purpose edge with us. Thank you for having me.
Well, I don't know about you, but that felt like a wild and crazy ride through someone's life because Malika has such a diverse life experience there. And the three things really that stood out to me were number one, her ability to overcome challenges and setbacks, certainly very stoic and resilient, and now advocating for a cause that she has lived the experience in. So I found her overall experience was quite fascinating, as I'm sure you did too. Number two, she had real clarity of meaning and purpose in her life, and her quote was, I use my words and my voice to make a positive difference in many people's lives, so I love that. And thirdly, finally, how could I not really come back to the point that not only did she meet Stevie Wonder three times, that was one thing, but she attended a party at Prince's house in his own nightclub. Now that is pretty wild. You'll find several links in the show notes, including links to her up coming shows at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. There's two of them. The a link to the National Centre for Action on Child Sexual Abuse and the No Laughing Matter podcast, as well as her own website. So I hope you really enjoyed that discussion. Uh, my contact details are also in the show notes in case you want to get in touch. And I'll see you next time for another episode of The Purpose Edge. Mm-hmm.